Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show, you can become a contributor at patreon.com slash words for granted. Starting at just a buck a month, which is less than what we all pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. The latest bonus episode explores the etymology of a few American English governmental words, such as president, senate, and caucus. If you contribute a little bit more, I'll even send you a words for granted mug. If Patreon's not your thing, but you'd still like to help keep this show on the road, you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Thanks to Keith, Eileen, and Ryan for their recent contributions. All right, let's get on to today's episode, part seven in our series on American English. A quick note before we dive in. Although this episode is primarily about the early works and spelling reforms of Noah Webster, As veterans of this podcast know, I love context. So we're going to start things off with a brief history of English spelling prior to Webster's work. From the early Middle English period to the early Modern English period, English spelling was wildly inconsistent. This is not because people back then were bad spellers per se, but because there were no spelling authorities available to the general public. Namely, there were no dictionaries. Other factors contributed to these inconsistencies as well. Middle English was essentially a hybrid of English and French, both of which had their own distinct spelling systems. As a result of a foreign spelling system coexisting alongside a native spelling system, the potential number of ways in which Middle English words could be spelled vastly multiplied in comparison to Old English. Furthermore, Middle English had five major dialects, each of which pronounced and consequently spelled words differently. A word's spelling could not only vary from dialect to dialect, but also could vary within a single dialect. To put into perspective just how many potential variations we're talking about here, the written record attests close to 500 different spellings of the word though. In as late as the works of Shakespeare, the letter I was interchangeable with the letter J, and the letter V was interchangeable with the letter U. I think by now you get the point. English has a long history of chaotic and inconsistent spellings. For those who might not know, the system of rules used to write in a given language is known as orthography. Conventions of spelling, punctuation, capitalization, and so on all fall under the umbrella of orthography. It's a good term to know, and now that I've defined it, I'll be using it throughout this episode. There were some attempts in the 15th and 16th centuries to standardize English orthography, but none of these successfully created a language-wide standard. While the spread of the printing press in the 1470s inherently helped to standardize some aspects of English orthography, this standardization was a slow and unmediated process. 
So, when the British began immigrating to North America during the 1600s, they imported Britain's hodgepodge orthography to the New World. In the American Language by H.L. Mencken, which has been an invaluable resource in researching this series, Mencken cites colonial American documents that spell eternal as A-E-A-E-T-E-R-N-A-L-L and February as F-F-E-B-R-E-W-A-R-I-E, both of which look absolutely crazy when you see them spelled out in front of you. Although spelling variations at this point in history were not as extreme as they had been in the centuries prior, English's legacy of inconsistent orthography was alive and well in the 17th century, now thriving on both sides of the Atlantic. But then, in 1755, a landmark event in the history of English spelling occurred. The British lexicographer Samuel Johnson published Johnson's Dictionary, the first dictionary to be universally accepted throughout the English-speaking world. It was the authoritative dictionary in Britain until the Oxford English Dictionary was published about a century and a half later, and many of the spelling conventions laid out in Johnson's work still distinguish modern British spelling from modern American spelling. The best known of these British spellings include the O-U-R ending in words such as color, honor, and humor, and the R-E ending in words such as center, theater, and fiber. Initially, Colonial America also accepted Johnson's Dictionary as the authority on English spelling, but this acceptance was short-lived, and here's why. During Colonial America, American opinion of American English was divided. Due to geographical distance and new cultural experiences, within three generations, Americans had begun speaking English quite differently than their kin overseas. Some Americans, such as Ben Franklin, viewed this evolution as a source of dignified self-identity, while others viewed it as a source of linguistic blasphemy against the motherland. After the Revolutionary War, the pro-American English stance became the more predominant camp, but even so, a handful of aristocratic literati still clung to Johnson's very British dictionary as their linguistic standard-bearer. However, by the 1870s, a new American voice began to compete with Johnson's for authority, and the power of that voice would quickly win over the American public at large. That voice belonged to Noah Webster, best known as the author of America's first widely successful dictionary. With that, the main character of today's story has entered the stage. Noah Webster's name has been immortalized in the Merriam-Webster Company, which has been publishing American dictionaries from the 1840s to the present day. In 2007, Merriam-Webster launched its first online dictionary and continues to update its database with new words every year. So, yeah, it's still relevant. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Merriam-Webster is synonymous with American Dictionary. If you're wondering who the Merriam in Merriam-Webster is, We'll cover that later. However, in spite of popular belief, Webster did not write the first American dictionary, so let's set that myth straight. The first American dictionary was written by a man named, you'll never believe it, Samuel Johnson, who had absolutely no relation to the British Samuel Johnson mentioned earlier. The American Samuel Johnson's dictionary is forgotten today because it failed to make a lasting historical impact, but we have to give credit where credit is due. 
Later on, we'll explore the particular reasons why Webster's Dictionary wound up outshining all of its competitors. Perhaps one of the reasons behind Webster's legacy that's worth mentioning up front was his public spirit. Noah Webster was not just a lexicographer, that is, someone who compiles dictionaries, but a politically motivated language reformer who ardently fought for a spoken and written standard of American English that was completely independent from the rules and baggage of British precedents. In Webster's own words, quote, As an independent nation, our honor requires us to have a system of our own, in language as well as in government. End quote. Webster's 1828 magnum opus, American Dictionary of the English Language, was preceded by the Grammatical Institute of the English Language and Dissertations on the English Language. Though lesser known today, these works were extremely popular during their time and laid the eventual groundwork for Webster's future dictionary. If we're interested in Webster's spelling reforms, both those that succeeded and those that failed, these earlier works are actually where we should begin. But first, a few words about Webster's life. Noah Webster was born on October 16, 1758, in West Hartford, Connecticut, and showed an early talent for academic learning. At the age of six, he began primary school. At the age of 14, he studied Greek and Latin with a local church pastor. And at the age of 16, he enrolled in Yale College. His time at Yale was interrupted by service in the Connecticut militia during the Revolutionary War, but once he returned to school, he earned a liberal arts degree. After graduating from Yale, Webster wanted to go back to school to become a lawyer. However, he himself didn't have the money to do that, and his father had already mortgaged the family farm to put him through school the first time around. So, unable to pursue the next phase of his higher education due to a lack of funds, out of necessity, Webster began teaching at several primary schools. Side note, Webster eventually did go back to school to earn his law degree, but that part of his life has nothing to do with our story. The schools at which Webster taught were all in a disastrous state. Teachers were poorly paid, classrooms lacked proper lighting and heating, as many as 70 students ranging in ages from adolescents to mid-teens were crammed into the same classroom, and large groups of students often shared a single textbook. These textbooks were not written by Americans for Americans, but by the British for the British. Many of the textbooks taught in American schools after the Revolutionary War still contain dedications to King George III, the very king from whom America had won independence. Based on this dysfunctional state of affairs, it was evident to Webster that America's primary education system needed a revolution. Webster's first work was The Grammatical Institute of the English Language, a three-part textbook published from 1783 to 1785 at the rate of one volume per year. The first and best-known volume of the Grammatical Institute was The Elementary Spelling Book, which came to be known as the Blueback Speller due to the book's blue binding. Technically, the book didn't get the title The Elementary Spelling Book until 1829, and before that it was called The American Spelling Book, and before that it was called the first volume of the Grammatical Institute of the English Language. But for the sake of convenience, I'm just going to call it The Blueback Speller, regardless of the chronology. Over the last two centuries, the book has sold over 100 million copies. From the time of its publication through the early 1900s, it was an essential part of every American student's scholastic education. Although it's no longer taught in every American classroom, the book has never gone out of print. 
Within Webster's own lifetime, over 300 editions saw the light of day. For a grammar textbook, these are whopping statistics, I'd say. So, what made the book so special? Two things. First, from a completely practical standpoint, it worked. And the effectiveness with which it taught students how to spell, read, and write is certainly what made it a commercial success. But second, from a cultural and linguistic standpoint, which is what we're more interested in, it also established an American orthographic tradition distinct from that of Britain. Before we discuss how and why, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Words for Granted is a proud member of the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Do you consider yourself a lifelong learner? Do you enjoy learning at your own pace, anytime, anywhere? If so, then you should really check out The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus offers unlimited video access to academic lecture series by some of the world's leading professors. This is college-level learning, but without the pressure of homework, grades, and, yeah, student loans. With the Great Courses Plus app, you can stream or download their entire video library onto your phone, or if you prefer, you can just listen to the audio of most lectures, just like you would a podcast. While the guy next to you on the train is playing a video game on his phone, you can be catching up on that college course that you always wish that you'd taken. Right now, I'm working my way through the Language Families of the World course taught by John McWhorter, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Did you know that there are 800 languages spoken in New Guinea? Or that linguists believe that all languages evolved from the click languages of Africa? The Language Families of the World course is a great complement to most of the things we talk about here on Words for Granted, so I hope you check it out. For a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering listeners of this show one free month of unlimited access to their entire library. To claim your free month, you'll need to sign up through my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash words. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash words. Really, it's my pleasure to have the opportunity to share this amazing deal with you, so don't miss out. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com dot com slash words. And back to our regularly scheduled programming. Noah Webster's breakaway from Samuel Johnson's British orthographic tradition didn't happen immediately. Considering the hype that I've given Webster as an orthographic revolutionary, it may surprise you that in the earliest editions of Grammatical Institute of the English Language, Webster follows the spelling conventions in Samuel Johnson's dictionary. These conventions included O-U-R endings in words such as color and honor, R-E endings in words such as theater and center, C-K endings in words such as music and prosaic, I-S-E endings in words such as criticize and formalize, a single L in words like downhill and forestall, and an ash in encyclopedia and anesthesia. Ash is the name of that obsolete grapheme where A and E are fused together as one letter. Many of these conventions are still considered standard in modern British English. According to the earliest editions of the Grammatical Institute, they were also considered the proper forms in American English, too. But then, in 1789, three years after the final volume of the Grammatical Institute was completed, Webster published Dissertations on the English Language. Dissertations contained a lengthy appendix which advocated for many radical spelling reforms in American English. 
In it, Webster writes, quote, In order to render our orthography sufficiently regular and easy, these principal alterations are necessary. End quote. He breaks these principal alterations down into three main categories and offers examples of each. In order to give you a feel for Webster's attitude and spirit, I'm just going to quote him at length. So, here we go. Category 1. The omission of all superfluous or silent letters, as A in bread. Thus, bread, head, give, breast, built, meant, realm, and friend would be spelt B-R-E-D, H-E-D, G-I-V, B-R-E-S-T, B-I-L-T, M-E-N-T, R-E-L-M, and F-R-E-N-D. Would this alteration produce any inconvenience, any embarrassment, or expense? By no means. On the other hand, it would lessen the trouble of writing, and much more, of learning the language. It would reduce the true pronunciation to a certainty, and while it would assist foreigners and our own children in acquiring the language, it would render the pronunciation uniform in different parts of the country, and almost prevent the possibility of changes. Okay, Category 2. A substitution of a character that has a certain definite sound for one that is more vague and indeterminate. Thus, by putting ee instead of ea or ie, the words mean, near, speak, grieve, and zeal would become m-e-e-n, n-e-e-r, s-p-e-e-k, g-r-e-e-v, and z-e-e-l. This alteration could not occasion a moment's trouble. At the same time, it would prevent a doubt respecting the pronunciation, whereas the E-A and I-E having different sounds may give a learner much difficulty. In this manner, C-H in Greek derivatives should be changed into K, for the English C-H has a soft sound, as in cherish, but K always has a hard sound. Therefore, character, chorus, colic, and architecture should be written K-A-R-A-C-T-E-R. K-O-R-U-S, K-O-L-I-C, and A-R-K-I-T-E-C-T-U-R-E. And were they thus written, no person could mistake their true pronunciation. Thus, C-H in French derivatives should be changed into S-H. Machine and Chevalier should be written M-A-S-H-E-E-N and S-H-E-V-A-L-E-E-R. And Peak, Tor, and Oblique should be written P-E-E-K-T-O-O-R, and O-B-L-E-E-K. All right, and category three. A trifling alteration in a character or the addition of a point would distinguish different sounds without the substitution of a new character. Thus, a very small stroke across T-H would distinguish its two sounds. Um, he's talking about the difference between th and th. Back to his own words. A point over a vowel might answer all the purposes of different letters, and for the diphthong ao, let the two letters be united by a small stroke, or both engraven on the same piece of metal with the left-hand line of the W united to the O. Alright, well, I bet you didn't see those coming. In editions of the Blue Backspeller following dissertations on the English language, Webster tried implementing some of these major reforms. Obviously, most of them didn't stand the test of time, and in fact, most of them never caught on in the first place. However logical some of these reforms might have been, such as the deletion of silent letters, apparently old spelling habits are hard to kick. 
Over the course of my research, I didn't find any specific backlash against Webster's more radical reforms, but I can imagine that one objection from classically educated intellectuals would have been that spelling reforms obscure words' etymological roots. Another argument against his spelling reforms is that, on a more practical level, having different spellings for homophones, such as B-R-E-A-D, and B-R-E-D, reinforces the distinction between words that just so happen to sound the same. I'm not sure if these are good or bad arguments against spelling reform, but they are arguments that I could imagine 18th century school marms making. Webster's main reforms that did catch on include the deletion of U from words like color and honor, the E-R ending in words like theater and center, and the I-Z-E ending in words like criticize and pulverize. I should note that Webster didn't invent these reforms per se. They already existed as variant British spellings prior to Johnson's dictionary, but they fell out of vogue after Johnson became the British authority. A handful of one-off spelling reforms also survived, such as J-A-I-L for jail and T-I-R-E for tire. In Johnson's dictionary, these were spelled G-A-O-L and T-Y-R-E, respectively, and both of these spellings are still the British standard today. While most of his proposed spelling reforms failed to make an impact, I find it rather impressive that Noah Webster, the father of the All-American Dictionary, held such radically progressive, practical, and political views on his country's language. He was hardly the prescriptivist that one might assume of America's first lexicographer. In fact, early editions of Webster's first dictionary contained novel spellings such as W-I-M-M-E-N for women, C-R-O-U-D for crowd, and I-L-A-N-D for island, among many others. It was not until after Webster's death that these phonetic spellings reverted back to their older, unphonetic British forms, which, of course, are the forms considered standard in all varieties of English today. I don't want to go into too much detail regarding Webster's Dictionary, as that will be the main topic for the next episode. I had so much to talk about that I had to break this into two separate parts. But before we wrap up, I'd like to leave you with another long quote from the Dissertations on the English Language. If I haven't properly conveyed to you the defiant patriotic spirit of Webster's vision of American spelling reform, perhaps his own words will really drive the point home. Quote, a capital advantage of this reform in these states would be that it would make a difference between the English orthography and the American. This will startle those who have not attended to the subject, but I am confident that such an event is an object of vast political consequence. For the alteration, however small, would encourage the publication of books in our own country. It would render it, in some measure, necessary that all books should be printed in America. The English would never copy our orthography for their own use, and consequently, the same impressions of books would not answer for both countries. Besides this, a national language is a band of national union. End quote. Alright, hopefully this episode served as a good introduction to the mind and works of Noah Webster. Next time, we'll wrap up our series on American English by looking at Webster's most famous contribution to American English, his dictionary. If you love the podcast, again, I'd like to remind you that you can sign up to show your support at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. 
If that's not in your budget, you can still leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast directory of choice. Those ratings and reviews really do help the show grow, and they give me feedback about what I can do to make the show better. I'm on Twitter at at Words for Granted, and Facebook as Words for Granted. And you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Have a great day. I'll catch you next time here at Words for Granted. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 